you, you know, Pete, you've done just so much in this whole area of heat stress. But I want to go back. I've got this list, okay? You see this list of topics I want to talk about, okay? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to go through everything, so I hope you brought your lunch. Okay? Well, we already talked about the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Dairy Digressions, the new podcast of the American Dairy Science Association, the Journal of Dairy Science and JDS Communications. I'm Matt Lucy, former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Dairy Science and JDS Communications and fellow of the American Dairy Science Association. I will be your host. Dairy Digressions is where you get an inside look at the science and the scientists that are making headlines both inside and outside the dairy industry. We explore the cutting-edge research that creates knowledge and drives innovation in the production and processing of milk for human consumption. If you enjoy Dairy Digressions or have any feedback for us, please let us know at ADSA at ADSA.org. And hey, everyone, we want to be the global number one dairy science podcast for 2024. To do that, we need your help. All you need to do is listen, like, subscribe, and rate us on whatever platform you're listening on and spread the word to a friend or colleague. Now, let's get to the meeting. Today, we have Dr. Pete Hansen, Distinguished Professor Ellie Red Larson, Professor of the Department of Animal Sciences at the University of Florida. Welcome, Pete. Thank you, Matt. I'm glad to be here. It is fantastic to have you. And out of the great state of Florida, out of the great department at the University of Florida, I guess two questions. Has it stopped raining yet? And how many inches of rain did you get in Florida? I think we got about six inches on Saturday night. And that was graduation night for the master's students in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. So I was there and it was very memorable. Yeah, and the second question I have, probably equal, probably more important, who was Red Larson? I mean, you're the Red Larson professor, so tell us about Red. Well, Red Larson is a dairyman. He died probably three, four years ago, lived into his 90s. He was one of the seminal figures in the history of the Florida dairy industry. I think he bought his first cow when he was 10. He sold his pony and bought a heifer. And eventually, Larson Dairy grew to be about 10,000 cows. Still in business today, run by his sons, Woody and John Larson, and then Woody's sons. So it's still a major dairy in the state of Florida. And his family donated money to the university several years ago to recognize the contributions of Red. So I'm very honored to be the Red Larson professor. Our, Our building is named after him. So, yeah, it's quite an honor. And maybe I I don't think people understand quite clearly that a lot of the origins of large dairy herd management and and large dairy herds, actually, that was kind of a Florida thing. Dairies around Lake Okeechobee and the south of Florida were some of the early large dairies where people sort of experimented. Well, well, how do you manage a thousand cows on one platform or 10,000 cows on one platform as opposed to 60 cows in a... uh, Freestyle. And, and I think what you're saying is Larson Dairy is one of those early large dairies down in, they must have been down in South Florida originally. Yeah, they were in north of Miami, like a lot of dairy farms. And then as Miami area experienced big population growth, they moved to north of Lake Okeechobee, near the town of Okeechobee. And yeah, you're right. I mean, at one time, Larson Dairy was the largest dairy in the United States. So they, they were some of the first 
farmers to expand, you know, into 2,000 cow units, which are still there today. So, yeah, they were leading the way. I was a Cornell grad and, you know, and I graduated from Cornell in the early 1980s. And I'll never forget, you know, milking cows on 60 cow dairies or 100 cow dairies. And then I'm a University of Florida grad. And when uh, Dr. Thatcher uh, took me on a project down, probably was one of Larson's dairies. I remember there was 10,000 cows on it. You just quickly learn that what I learned in terms of dairy management at Cornell wasn't going to work here. You know, does that make sense? Well, I had the same experience also with Bill. We went down to do a heifer breeding trial and we checked heat with binoculars. I thought oh, that's different. <laughs> it's slightly different. <laughs> Just throw the old books away. And of course, uh, as you know, there's been a few, the original Large Dairy Herd Management Conference and then the subsequent conferences. And those were all supported by the American Dairy Science Association. It's really been important. I want to get back to you personally. And uh, you must have been born in Chicago somewhere. I'm just guessing. I was born in Chicago. I think I still have the Chicago accent. But you're Irish. I know that, right? Yeah, my mother is from County Wexford. And when I was a kid, she used to go back home, visit her family, and I would stay on my cousin's farm, which was a mixed farm. They milked cows for the family, and they'd beef cows and sheep and pigs and raise potatoes and barley and fodder for the animals on about 140 acres of land. So that's what turned me on to agriculture, really. They must have been milking like 10 cows or something. Was it something Less like that? Less than 10 cows. Less yeah. than 10 cows. 60 cows would have been a lot of cows. Yeah. <laughs> and so what... in Ireland, too. So they had about four or five cows they milked. Yeah. And so that sort of got you in, even though they must have been milked by hand, and this sort they of got you... By hand. Yeah. This sort of got you interested in dairy. Yeah, I love this. You know, to this day, there's a strong, obviously, dairy tradition in Ireland. And big shout out to all the scientists out there. Hey, you need to listen to dairy digressions, right, Pete? So you went to University of Illinois, which obviously out of Chicago. You, you Did you start out in animal science or did you go yeah. a different direction? Yeah, I knew I loved science. I've always loved science. And I loved animal agriculture. So, yeah, I became an animal science student. Were you a good student or, or how were you as an undergrad? I was a good student, yeah. You were? I was, yeah. No, I was a good student. And I had great professors who were extremely welcoming. So, yeah. you know, by my sophomore year in college, I was doing experiments with Dr. Chuck Graves in the Department of Dairy Science. Mm-hmm. So we were, you know, I was, I was working with his grad students, kind of like I do today with some undergrads. I have very warm memories of my time at University of Illinois. Was that the time when they had the five breeds at the University of Illinois? Was was that before the five breeds were at the University of Illinois? You know, I, they had multiple breeds. I, I don't. I mean, I know I worked with brown Swiss cows and they had Guernsey cows and, of course, Holstein. I'm sure they had all five breeds back then. I worked in the old round dairy barn. No way. Yeah. Really. Oh, my God. So for those that don't know, if you go, first of all, University of Illinois to this day, it is an outstanding institution with tremendous history in the sciences. Is that's, I think that's fair enough, Pete. And yeah. in a strong dairy science program, okay, I, I'm going to miss, I'm going to make a mistake here. But of course, Tim Drakeley, Phil Cardoso, I mean, there's a Jimmy Clark, who longtime nutritionist there. I know I'm missing a ton of people, but, you know, there are 
friends, the American Diary Science Association there. Also, there are these round barns. I was just there with Paul Cunanuff, and we drove by those barns. Is it they don't want the devil to get you into a corner kind of barn, or why were those barns round? I think those were built like in the first decade of the 20th century, and people thought it would be more efficient to milk cows and to handle cows in a circle than in a flat, linear barn. Really? So, yeah, everything was built in the round. So in the round. The milk lines, the <laughs> they had tubs to clean out the manure that was on a line that went around in a circle. It was a pipe. They thought that was dream, more efficient. Right? I don't think it, there were several round barns built in the Midwest. Yeah. Some of them are still around. Yeah. But obviously it, never caught on. Hey, then you moved up to the University of Wisconsin with Ed Hauser and I yeah. Maybe I'm just not smart enough, but tell me about that program with Ed Hauser. What were you doing? Okay, so why Wisconsin? Why didn't you go somewhere else? How'd you end up in Wisconsin? Well, I knew I'd be able to watch the Green Bay Packers every Sunday. <laughs> For sure, right? Before cable TV, we're depending on an antenna. Yes, yeah. I always, I mean, I grew up loving Wisconsin, so my parents, when we were kids, sometimes would take us on vacation. Wisconsin. So I love Wisconsin. So Wisconsin had a tradition of, you know, outstanding research and reproductive physiology. I didn't know anything about this. Yeah. Just thought Wisconsin would be a good place to live. And luckily, Ed Hauser took me as his grad student and really taught me how to be a scientist. So here you go. You finish up with Ed Hauser, and then I guess some guy named Mike Roberts offers you a postdoc at the University of Florida, and your wife probably immediately goes on full-scale revolt, right? Were you married at that point? I was married. Did she and, want to go to Florida? You know, she knew marrying me that I would move around, so yeah. she was okay with that. And then I think she cried when we left Wisconsin. We had a lot of friends here. Yeah. And we left in April, as snowed when we left. And two days later, we were in Florida, and it was like in the 80s with a warm breeze. And Nancy decided this was the perfect place to live. (laughs) And I know that to this day, just to digress, as a graduate student, you and your wife were so accommodating when all the students, and your wife is so gracious, so gracious. And I I was just visiting you guys, I can't remember, a few months ago or last year or something, and and the same sort of thing, so gracious. And I know she loves Florida and loves Gainesville and loves her home there. So it's funny, you know, these things work out, and... You Did you know at that time you were going to go into the center of all things maternal recognition of pregnancy? Did you have a sense that something historic was going to occur at that time or not? Yeah, no. So, you know, I went to Florida because I heard a seminar by Fuller Baser, who worked with Mike Roberts. And I, I did my postdoc with both those guys. And I heard a seminar by Fuller Baser that just like blew me away. Maternal recognition of pregnancy in the pig. And on the pig. Yeah. And but but just the kind of research he was doing, you know, the kind of experimental procedures was so different than what I was doing as a grad student, which was mostly measuring hormone concentrations. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to work with them. Then we had a student, Mike Vernon who came from Florida to do a postdoc at Wisconsin. And he told all of everybody how great Florida was. So I knew I wanted to go to Florida. 
so I was lucky enough to get a, a postdoc there and then eventually a faculty job. You know, it's funny how the discovery and the work at the University of Florida on maternal recognition of pregnancy is so near and dear to many of our hearts, you know, and that team of Thatcher and Baser and Roberts working away and with their postdocs and their grad students. And it was quite the time. I was there about that time with Steve Helmer. He was my contemporary. And I was not working on interferentile. We were working on other things at the time, but it was it was a place, right? And it continues. And, and there were so many reproductive biologists there at that time working both in the animal science department and also in the College of Veterinary Medicine. That was also quite novel. The concept you had an animal science department that was more than just one or two reproductive biology people. You know, here was a huge team and then the collaboration across the veterinary. It was quite a, ahead of its time in a certain respect, wouldn't you think? Everybody got along. And I'm sure there were egos and all that stuff, but it was never really apparent. And everybody seemed to have their labs open to everybody. And grad students would move freely from one lab to the other in, in the med school or in animal science, dairy science. And, you know, there were a lot of different views of science that yeah. all kind of meshed together. Like, I think... Fuller Baser was tremendously imaginative. Bill Thatcher was tremendously rigorous in how he did experiments, how he did statistics. Mike Roberts was very imaginative when it came to introducing new technology into science. Dr. Barron, Dr. Donald Henry Barron, was kind of the father figure of everybody and brought a lot of historical perspective to what was happening. And also believe very strongly in keeping collaboration informal and, you know, not having a chief and a bunch of little Indians, but everybody being equal. So it just meshed perfectly. And, you know, the facilities were poor, really. The animal facilities weren't great. The lab facilities were bad. But uh, Dr. Barron used to say, the song of the canary does not depend on the gilding on the cage. Is that right? Yeah. You know, a lot got done. Dr. Barron, I forgot to mention when I talked about this collaboration, there was animal scientists. There was uh, Dr. Barron was in the College of Medicine or the whatever it was, School of Medicine, right. along with Bill Buhai was over there as well. And then, of course, everybody remembers Martin Drost over in the College of Veterinary Medicine and all the members of the team uh, within animal and dairy science. Okay, this was across both animal and dairy science. And great things came out of that collaboration. And I know eventually you transitioned. You did some early work on recombinant interferon tau with Claire Plant, and I can't remember her husband's name, but uh, Claire Plant. And you guys did some early work on that. But then you, I don't know if it's fair to say, but you became quickly interested in sort of embryology, heat stress, and became sort of a leader in, in that. But before we talk about that, I know that we had a conversation at the DCRC meetings because you recently gave a talk on uh, early embryonic loss, and we were both there. And I said, well, Pete, you're going to retire now. And you said, I don't know about that. <laughs> so tell me about, do you teach? Do you have any teaching? You know, Fuller Baser told me that his role model was Dr. Barron. Yeah, I said, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, went to work on Friday, died on Monday. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Just had to worry about yeah. one weekend. You know? he, was, he was 89. I teach two graduate courses in reproductive biology, and each one is taught every other year. And then I teach a small course on thermal biology, which is all pre-recorded. So I teach that all the time. 
right. times a year. And then, you know, I guess lecture and undergrad theory science course. Right. Oh, I still teach. I have grad students. Yeah, fantastic. And a I'm postdoc. A scientist. Yeah. And you have a technician or no? Yeah, I have a technician who's also a grad student. So, okay, Tachi, okay. Maya. And what's your favorite uh, funding source? <laughs> the, the one the biggest checks, right? Yeah, whichever one funds me is my favorite at the moment. I mean, I, I'm sure I've gotten more funding from USDA, NIFA, than anywhere else. And right. I've also gotten, I've been fortunate, really, to get some funding from BARD, the Binational Agricultural Research and Development Fund, which is for collaborative research between Israel and the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I've occasionally gotten funding from NIH, which... Those are the biggest checks. My recollection of your lab was, first of all, it was well-run and people were happy. Do you have any philosophy on how you run your lab or any things that you do? I wrote a whole paper about that. You wrote a whole paper? So yeah. much written, right? So in we're... Journal in the, Animal Science. In the, yeah, well, no, I have, a lot of, I have a lot of ideas about that, which I'm going to have a hard time verbalizing, but... You know, I'm, I'm a great believer in having fun, making science fun, mm -hmm. making it exciting. I expect a lot from my students. You know, I expect them to do rigorous science and to work hard, uh, to help each other. But, you know, I try to have fun. I, I mean, I find science incredibly fun and exciting and, you know, frustrating and painful and all that stuff. But you know, as long as the joy of science outweighs the agony of getting your papers rejected and getting your grants turned down, then it's worth doing. So I try to create that atmosphere for, among my students and in the lab. Yeah, I am organized, I think. So I try to keep the lab organized and make sure there's enough resources for everybody. And I think People teach each other. I think, you know, if you're a lazy grad student and you come into my lab and you see everybody working hard and enjoying themselves, you kind of do that too. Whereas if you're in a lab where nobody's ever there, I think even if you're hardworking, after a while, you're not there either. So yeah. I've tried to keep that atmosphere of, you know, purposeful fun, I guess. Yeah, so I always... And I've probably said it on this podcast before, you know, science is too hard not to have fun. It's way too hard. Exactly. It, the day you don't enjoy it, you better get out, you know. And exactly. I also tell people the day you don't get upset when a paper gets rejected or a grant doesn't get funded, you better get out that day too. Okay. You're going to have days where you're really upset, you know, but you're going to have great days, right? Great days. And I always feel so fortunate that I don't know how science and me came together I know how they did come together, but I was just fortunate. I think one of the things that's really hard is, you know, I have a lot of undergraduate advisees and when you can just tell they haven't found what their passion and that's hard. That's hard when you have young people that just don't really know what's really exciting. Does that make sense to you, Pete? And Yeah. So, I mean, I found it as a freshman, you know, I, I, honest to God. I mean, I took animal science 101. Yeah. Phil Junk was, I went to University of Illinois thinking like, what are they going to teach in animal science? I mean, yeah. I already know what cattle eat and what pigs eat. And, uh, you know, what are they going to teach us? And then my first course, Animal Science 101, Phil Shuck taught genetics and then reproduction. Yeah. 
you know, I just had never realized, you know, people are studying these things and changing the way that animals are raised because of what they learn. It just, you know, turned me on. And then, yeah, I think that's what's so, I'm a great believer in a master's and a PhD, not just mm -hmm. going right into a doctoral program. Yeah. Because sometimes, I mean, a lot of students are kind of lost in college. They don't really know what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And a master's gives you the opportunity to find out whether you really like it. Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't like research, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just one field out of many. But it gives you a good chance to, you know, readjust if right. you realize it's not for you. I yeah. feel like you're very, very fortunate, very lucky. You and I are, well, I think many of us who are in science are a lot alike. We love to go to work. We love to be at work. We're very mm -hmm. happy to be here. I'm happy to be here today. I never walk through my doors in my building and go, I wish I wasn't here. I never right. look at the clock. I actually have to set my cell phone with a timer because sometimes you forget what time it is. You know, I don't have any windows in my office and it's tremendously uh, rewarding. When I was at Florida, David Wolfenson, I believe David was at the Hebrew University. Right. And I know that you've had BARD funding and BARD is U.S.-Israeli Binational Agricultural Research and Development Fund. I know you've had BARD funding and I know you've had in Israelis. And this is being recorded in December, and we're all thinking of our colleagues in that area. And the first thing I would like to say is that we have active authors at both Bokani Center and Hebrew University who are members of the American Dairy Science Association and publishers in Journal of Dairy Science. But we have active authors throughout that region, including people of different nationalities and religious persuasions and everything else. And I would just like to say that war in that region touches really closely to dairy scientists because so much dairy science is done in particularly in Israel, but other countries in that region as well. And I think we all just want peace in that region, right? I think that's what we want. I'll just quote Anthony Blinken, which is our U.S. Secretary of State, we don't have to choose between defending Israel and aiding Palestinian civilians. We can and must do both, you know, and I think that's how we feel. But there's a tremendous amount of dairy research that's going on in, in that region. And I thought what was quite brave was that you sent out an email to your colleagues to help aid a kibbutz that was attacked on uh, October 7th by Hamas. And can you just tell me about, I know you've had students, could you just tell me about that email and just tell me about your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I love science, right? One of the things I love about being in a community of scientists is it's a global society, right? And we, when we go to these international meetings, people from throughout the world, allies of the United States, enemies of the United States, are all there together working on the same problems and facing some of the same issues. So it really does give you the feel for, you know, we're all a community of mankind. And so, I mean, I feel that. And my lab, just like your lab, we've had people from all over the world work in our lab. So I've had one of my favorite grad students, a Palestinian grad student, and V. Roth from Hebrew University did a postdoc with me. I know his son is in Gaza now. You know, we feel, I think, personally, not directly, right? We can't know 
but we sympathize with what everybody's going through. And I think probably almost all scientists around the world certainly want peace. And it especially come strikes home because like you say, so many of us have ties with Israel. So many of us have ties with the dairy industry and the dairy industry in Israel was hit very hard on October 7th. There are quite a few kibbutzes, uh, cooperative farms located near the border with Gaza. So several of those were attacked on October 7th and people killed, not just Israelis, but Thai workers, workers from other countries were killed. And and those farms devastated, you know, innocent people. Um, so, I mean, I was just talking to Spee Roth, like, what can we do? Mm. And and he suggested that we can support some of the kibbutzes that were attacked on October 7th. So I, I sent an email, yeah, for kibbutz Alamim, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Mm. So they were one of those kibbutzes that were attacked. I think that was so well spoken, Pete, what you just said, you know, is there's a community of scientists and everyone wants to live in peace, yet war is not peace. Fair enough. So, and I don't even want to continue because you said that so beautifully. So I appreciate <laughs> you. I appreciate you. And, and for an old Chicago guy too, you know, I mean, you know, what is that all about? But not always the, so peaceful there. Uh, that was so, so beautifully said, but the, and it also leads into what I want to talk about. I just wanted to talk to you about your science, and we've been talking about your science, but I want to talk more about your science, and we're going to talk about uh, heat stress. And of course, it's not a bad transition from Israel to heat stress, because as you know, the Israelis have been very strong in this area of research for a long time. And I, I th hopefully most people understand that Israelis have outstanding dairy farms, and they do it in a very arid region. And a lot of our thinking about heat stress has come out of Israel. Uh, of course, V and David Wilfinson, the people that I know, they had an interest in this topic. And they end up at Florida because Florida is a subtropical region of the United States, you know. And I just want to uh, compliment you on, I, I looked you up on the Journal of Dairy Science. And I tell you, you're hitting us pretty hard. I mean, I made a little list here and that's only page one. So congratulations. You must not be getting too much stuff rejected, Dr. Hansen. But now... Now we're going to do a real digression. You've heard about the ADSA Author Loyalty Program, right, that we have just introduced? I don't think I have heard about oh, it. Oh, there you go. Well, we're going to bring it out of dairy digressions now. So ADSA has introduced a journal loyalty program. And so now uh, as long as you're an ADSA member, and I'm assuming you're an ADSA member, yeah. and as long as you have an ORCID ID that's listed both in the journal and on Scholar One, you got those things? I do, yeah. So now uh, for your publications in ADSA journals, both JDS Communications and Journal of Dairy Science, you get points for your publications as well as your re on-time reviews. And those points can be applied to page charges. So I think you're going to really score oh, with this, this new program because you're just so active in reviewing. I know you've reviewed for me. You, you know, Pete, you've done just so much in this whole area of heat stress and but I want to go back. I've got this list, okay? You see this list of topics I want to talk about, okay? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to go through everything, so I hope you brought your lunch. Okay? Well, we already talked about the Green Bay Packers. I <laughs> <laughs> hope you brought your lunch. But anyways, <laughs> hey, let's go back to Putney's work, okay? Because uh, Jim Putney's work, and I'm not sure, he was a Thatcher student, but you... He was. Conceptually... 
Putney's work and then your subsequent work on understanding the sensitivity when are embryos sensitive to heat stress and why? So I could hack it all up, but just tell us when are embryos sensitive to heat stress and why? And maybe some of those pivotal studies in your mind that demonstrated that. So I think the first person to show that as the embryo advances through pregnancy, it becomes more resistant to heat stress was Ray Duth. Wow. Back in 1961 Ooh. in the sheep. And I didn't actually know about Ray Dutt's work when we did our studies. So, But Ray Dutt exposed sheep to heat stress at different times relative to breeding. And he found that after, I, I don't remember the exact days, after two or three days, the embryo became resistant to heat stress. And then in 1967, there was a paper published in the pig that found the same thing. So, yeah, Jim Putney, who was a grad student at Bill Thatcher's, he did a lot of studies in environmental chambers where he exposed cows to heat stress. I know he did two studies, one where he exposed a cow from day one to seven. These were superovulated cows, and then he flushed the embryos and showed that cows that were exposed to heat stress, the embryos died or didn't develop. Mm-hmm. more often than the embryos from the cows not exposed to heat stress. And then he did a very cool study where he induced estrus in cows, and as soon as they became an estrus, he put them in environmental chambers for 15 hours, just 15 hours. And then he took them out of the chambers, and they were in a cool environment. And he showed that heat stress just for that short period of time, right around ovulation, also reduce the ability of the embryos to develop. So, you know, that was very good work. And then Bill started working with Martin Drost, where they were transferring embryos into cows during heat stress and showed that they were getting higher pregnancy rates to embryo transfer than to artificial insemination. I got hired, actually, by the Dairy Science Department to study heat stress, yeah. which I wasn't particularly interested in, but, you know, I did want a job. So <laughs> When we talk about heat stress and dairy, I forgot to sort of bring some of our listeners up to speed. The fact that when we talk about summertime and dairy, we deal with two things. We deal with depressed milk production, right? Loss in milk production. And we also deal with loss in fertility. And it is basically... I would say both are some of the most unmet sort of questions in the dairy sciences, how you address these issues, and they're important. And, of course, when we think about uh, global warming, there well, there's two things going on, right, and fair enough in dairy. I mean, you got cows who make more milk, uh, more metabolic heat production with that, and also uh, global warming. And so it's this kind of question that comes up every summer, how are we going to do this? And I, we're going to dissect away on this, Pete, a little more. And that is that, you know, the current methods of, basically spraying clean water on cows and air. Fair enough. Fans and sprinklers and cooling, that that remains kind of the number one thing to do. Was that Collier that first proposed that idea of water and, and fans, or was that before Collier? Was that an Israeli idea? Where did that come from? I don't know. I know that, yeah, Collier was one of the first, and then there was also work by David Wolfenson around the same time in Israel. So I don't know who came up with the idea first. 
but they both found yeah similar ideas and it's interesting so yeah we we spent a lot of time working on embryo transfer as a way to reduce the impact of heat stress on fertility mm-hmm. there was a paper published by jeff buley in journal of dairy science i think and others in 2019 where they took dhia data and looked at uh, summer winter differences and milk yield and in fertility. And, you know, even in the Northeast, there's a, a drop in milk yield, a drop in fertility in the summer, not nearly as much as in the Southwest or the Southeast, but it's a national problem. The other thing though, that I think is interesting is like here in Florida, you know, there's been a big change in the dairy industry. Number of dairy farms has gone down, but the farms have gotten a lot bigger. And they've also gotten a lot better at cooling cows using kind of the same principles you were talking about, getting a lot of ventilation in the barn with how the barn is built and then with fans and then using sprinklers or soakers to cause evaporative cooling of the cows. So myself, you know, as a researcher, I don't see the same drop in fertility on commercial dairy farms in the summer now, even though global climate change is occurring, even though cows are producing more milk than ever before. I don't see the same drop in fertility in the summer now as I used to see when I got hired in the 1980s. Like we used to see pregnancy rates in the summer routinely less than 10%. Less than mm-hmm. one out of 10 cows in seminated got pregnant. And some producers didn't even breed cows in the summer because nothing got pregnant. The best managed farms, yeah. you know, it's in the 30s or 40s even. So they have done a good job cooling cows and, you know, managing the cow in general, managing transition period. It's interesting that, you know, you bring that up and it brings forward the role of science, right? And that science does make a difference. And that science does make cows more efficient and make industries more profitable. And I always tell people, you don't, uh, this doesn't happen by magic. You know, there's nobody beaming down information. It's people going out there and doing work and collecting data and publishing information. And and then farmers and extension agents presenting information, for example, or ourselves, we're not an extension, but, and then farmers believing that science is real and can be trusted, you know, and then farmers testing it on their own farms and saying, you know, this does work. You know, this does help. I am getting more milk in the tank. It's interesting, isn't it? And I don't like attacks on science and we're not going to talk about attacks on science this today. Okay. Maybe another podcast will talk about sort of, uh, you know, clandestine attacks on the scientific community where like trying to suggest that maybe what we do isn't for the good of, all mankind, you know, I get kind of cranked up, but we don't have time to talk about that today because we're talking about heat stress and then we're going to take it one level more, but I got to go, I got to, before we talk about embryo transfer and blastoids and you're looking at your watch already, it's not time for lunch. (laughs) I want to talk about these darn Holsteins because I know for a long time you used to study both Holsteins and Brahma, right? And I think that may have led to the slick gene. I don't yeah, we're still studying Brahmins. You still have them both. Yeah. And, but why? what is that deal? So what is the, okay, get to the bottom line. Okay, so you got a Brahmin cow. They're not making a lot of milk, right? 
and they got different skin and they got different ears and they got different sort of body parts in general, but they still don't mind sitting out in the sun, whereas the Holsteins are going to crap out and die before you know it, right? So what is, in your opinion, give me the number one, two, and three reasons why a Brahmin is less sensitive to heat. They produce less heat, probably have smaller digestive tract. Really? They don't grow as much. Really? Yeah, that's probably one reason. And then, you know, they have short hair. They have black skin. That increases their heat loss to the environment, and the black skin reduces damage to the skin by heat stress. You know, they everybody says, well, it's because they have all that extra skin, so their surface area per unit body weight is greater than other animals. But actually, somebody back in the 1950s, McDowell, cut off all that extra skin. It was something you probably would have a hard time getting wow. approval to do. And they still regulated their body temperature better than boss tourist animals. I think Jersey's was his control. Yes. So for the, we don't completely know why they better able to regulate their body temperature. They have maybe they sweat more or they have the capacity for sweating more. Most studies that we did, they sweat less, probably because, you know, they're not as hyperthermic. They don't need to sweat. Yeah. But Raluca Machescu in our department has studied the sweat glands of the Brahmin. They are bigger. As long as I'm pontificating here, my wife always says, you know, when I was first hired, I had to teach this thermal biology course. I didn't know anything about thermal biology. I was like one lecture ahead of the students in the college. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that really became obvious to me was that in the beef cattle world, their solution to heat stress is to breed an animal that's thermal tolerant, that can resist heat stress. So, mm-hmm. you know, they cross Boss animals with Angus or whatever and produce a Brangus or a Brayford that is uh, more resistant to heat stress. Whereas in the dairy world, it's always been, well, let's build better barns. Right. Yeah. And I always wonder, why don't we look for genetic solutions to heat stress in dairy cattle? And that answer is because you know, the difference in production between a Brahmin and an Angus is real, mm-hmm. but it's a lot less than the difference in production between a, a Red Cindy or, a, you know, a Jeer and a Holstein that you lose so much milk yield by crossing that it's just not practical. We started looking for what are the specific genes yeah, so that we could bring in a specific gene and leave behind all the genes that cause low milk yield or low growth rate. So that's kind of why we were studying Brahmins, or one reason why we were studying Brahmins. And I have not found any gene yet in the Brahmin that is responsible for their superior thermal tolerance. But that is something we're looking at. Again, taking advantage of somebody else's research, Tim Olson found this slick mutation in Bostorus cattle that causes really short hair. So we brought that gene, or Tim brought that gene into the Holstein, and we've been doing a lot of work with that gene. And do that is fe- one yeah. specific gene that does confer thermal tolerance. So you do feel that the benefits of slick are real? Would you yes or no? Yes. And do you think they're greater than, I know you did some work on white coat color versus black coat color in Holstein. Is it is slick greater than white coat color or not? What is the, where does it rank? 
Well, you know, we've never compared the two. Yeah, my white coat ideas never really caught on. Well, you know, they're crazy, those white Holsteins. You know that. That's what everybody says. That's what everybody says is that, they, you know, you don't want white Holsteins. (laughs) I say that's because they're not heat stress like the black ones. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's interesting. So you haven't looked at slick on white then? No, but, you know, white hair coat reflects about 50% of the solar radiation. Black hair coat reflects about 10%. No way. It's that big a difference? Yeah, so it makes wow. sense that a white cow can regulate her body temperature better, especially if there's a lot of solar radiation, like yes. grazing. The problem is the white skin is associated with white hair color, yeah. at least in Holstein. And I don't know whether you know sunburn would be more common in a, a white Holstein. Mm-hmm. You know how big of a problem is sunburn. Probably depends on the diet. I know cows eat a lot of clover are really prone to sunburn. Okay. But yeah, yeah the white thing has not really attracted a lot of positive attention. Well, I remember it. Okay. So you've got oh, my yeah. attention. Okay. And of course, as you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk to this gentleman, uh Dr. Geitz Labiel. Uh he's out of egg research. They just introduced the gene into Holstein to give him a lighter coat. And let me uh, tell you about that gene. I don't know if that exact gene, that's a dilution gene that makes yeah. the black hair kind of like grayish, bluish. Yeah. Th- there are mutations that exist naturally in the Holstein that cause that same phenotype. So Is that Larson right? Dairy, we started talking about Larson Dairy. They have a strain of Holstein they call Larson Blue. <laughs> that, that's Larson Blue? Yeah, that has that. I don't know if it's the same gene they mutated, but it probably is. But it's the same phenotype, that light, brownish, grayish, bluish color. Yeah. So we did study their body temperature regulation, and it wasn't different. Oh, wow. Well, we're curious to see. We're going to talk to him and about his experiences with uh, gene editing in New Zealand and that sort of thing. It'd be We're going to get him. And Jeff uh, Dahl has seen Holsteins with that same coat color in Poland. In Poland. My guess is there are natural mutations that cause that. Interesting. Very, yeah, I read his paper. Very interesting. And of course, as you know, uh, one of our previous speakers, Dr. Jenny Price from Australia, they've introduced basically uh, breeding value, I think, for heat tolerance. And it's based on sort of how a Holstein responds to increases in environmental temperature. And I, oh, they base it on milk production. So certain, certain Holsteins, uh, given a set environmental temperature, will have a lesser reduction in milk production. And they translate that into differences in terms of heat tolerance and resilience. And so we talked to Jenny about that. I'm not sure where they are in introducing that into the national breeding scheme in Australia, but they have. They've introduced it. Yeah, we did some work with them on that. We oh. we went into uh, dairy in California, Maddox Dairy, which is mm-hmm. phenotyped. So we calculated the breeding value for thermal tolerance using the Australian breeding value, and then just looked at body temperature regulation and the animals that had a high breeding value for thermal tolerance had lower body temperatures than ones with uh low breeding value for thermal tolerance. Now, we also looked at seasonal variation at milk yield, but the seasonal variation was so low that we weren't really able to evaluate whether the breeding value works for milk yield. But 
Yeah, I think that comes from either Ben Hayes in Australia or Ignacy Mistow uh, at University of Georgia. Mm -hmm. Probably Ignacy, but I'm not sure. I don't want to get into the fight over who did it first. Right. But what they do is look at, say, a bull's daughters, and some of those bull's daughters, their milk yield really goes down in the summer. They mm -hmm. use THI, but that's temperature humidity index. So some of their bull's daughters, really, their milk yield drops or their conception rate drops. And then other bulls, they still drop, but not as much. Yeah. So that's the breeding value. Pete, one of the things that has been interesting about your career is you identified this need in heat stress. You identified that. I'm assuming that the, the sensitivity of the embryo to heat stress has something to do with genome activation. I'm a, I think that's something like that or capacity. I think so. Before the genome is activated, they have no capacity to essentially respond. Is that fair? Yeah, they're limited probably in how they can, if, if the body temperature goes up, if the local temperature the embryo is living in goes up, it tries to adjust itself to keep its cells functioning normally. But, you know, they have like one arm tied behind their back because their genes are turned off. They don't get turned on until about the eight cell stage until right. about three. So they can't do everything a normal cell does. I think that's what's happening. And so one of the things that's been interesting about your career is that led into your work as an embryologist and led into the concept, okay, can we circumvent this region through the in vitro production of embryos? And of course, you demonstrated with your science that, okay, if we do circumvent this time period, we can increase pregnancy rates in cows in the summer. And, and you demonstrated that quite nicely. And, and you have a series of publications on that. And then, of course, it came to, well, we need an inexpensive source of embryos if we're going to do this widely across the dairy industry. And as many of our listeners will recognize, that involves oocyte collection, in vitro, in vitro maturization, maturation, in vitro fertilization, in vitro embryo culture, probably fresh or fr probably usually freezing. It doesn't have to involve freezing. You can transfer fresh. And that was kind of a big ask. So I'll ask you before we talk about the blastoids and everything else, have we moved the needle in that area? In other words, do you feel like there is an inexpensive source of embryos that you could use to circumvent this period? Or has the management caught up to such an extent, you mentioned that the guys are really much better at managing heat stress, that maybe we don't need to go that direction anymore. Where do, where do you see that? You understand the question then? Yeah, yeah. So the last part of your question, I guess, depends upon where you are, right? So there's still a lot of places in the world where fertility in the summer is pretty catastrophic. So mm -hmm. I think in the more modern dairies that are existing in Florida, for example, yeah, heat stress is still a problem, but not near the problem it used to be. And I bet it would never be economical to do embryo transfer to improve fertility. But there's probably places in Brazil and the Mideast, other places where fertility goes down a lot in the summer. If you could develop an inexpensive way to do embryo transfer, I think it would be worthwhile. Most of the studies I've seen by Albert DeVries, it's not really cost effective to do embryo transfer. And, you know, there's two aspects of that the cost of the embryo. And then the cost to have the embryo put in. So the process for embryo transfer 
is more or less like AI, mm -hmm. but instead of depositing the semen in the body of the uterus, you have to deposit it in the uterine horn where the corpus luteum is. So you have to be able to get that gun, that pipette, up into the uterine horn without causing any damage, and it's got to be the right uterine horn. So I think, you know, herdsmen could be trained to do that. A lot of people argue with me about that. But in a lot of states, I mean, that's considered veterinary medicine, or the people doing it are charging from $50 to $75 a cow just to put the embryo in. Mm -hmm. So that limits the effectiveness of the procedure. I would really like to see us develop new tools for embryo transfer, mm -hmm. you know, something I don't have the ability to do. But, mm -hmm. you know, why are we, even for AI, why are we relying on such primitive technology as, you know, grabbing the cervix through the, through the rectum and manipulating a metal gun through the cervix? So that's one part of it. The other part is the embryo. So there's at least one company in the U.S., Simploth, in Idaho, that does sell frozen embryos produced in vitro. And I, I don't know how much they charge, say $50 to $100. But they're from slaughterhouse oocytes, which doesn't mean that they're bad, but they're probably average on average, right? Mm -hmm. Slightly less than average because cull cows you know, are a little bit older than the average cow in the herd. So the mm -hmm. average breeding value is a little bit less than average. But you could always use a really great bull and still produce very good offspring. But a lot of people don't really believe that. Uh, but it's true. So there is one company that sells them, but it's still, I don't know, 50 to $100. Theoretically, there's a lot of potential embryos thrown away all the time, right? In an individual ovary, how many follicles are there? It depends on the age, but, you know, thousands. Mm. And people are working to find techniques to grow those follicles up to the point where you could uh, fertilize uh, the oocyte in vitro. You know, if we could identify cows as they come through the slaughter plant, what their genomics are, mm -hmm. you could take the top 1% of the cows. And if you could somehow harvest those oocytes, you could produce lots of genetically valuable embryos from slaughterhouse cows. Mm -hmm. And of course, you're interested in, you know, even more next generation technologies. Can we make stem cells from genetically valuable embryos and use those stem cells to generate oocytes to produce embryos. We can do it if, if we're working with mice. Can't do it yet in cattle, but I predict someday we will be able to do that. And then you can go even further, and which is, I know you're going to talk to Carl Yang about this, you know, make artificial embryos. Uh, I think the cover of Nature this month had a picture of an artificial embryo right. um, produced by Monica Zernica Getz. So, you know, that's really captured the imagination of uh, scientists taking stem cells and constructing an artificial embryo with the stem cell. If you could do that and actually get a calf from it, 
yeah, then embryos become unlimited. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, right now we we feel like to a certain sex, semen straws are unlimited to a certain sense. You know, you can get every ejaculation, 250 straws, 500 straws uh, out of a bowl. And so I find that I'm a big fan of stem cell podcast and uh, shout out to Dalen and Arun and my friends at stem cell podcast who uh, motivated me to do this podcast. And it's always fascinating how fast that field, particularly the embryology field in the stem cell arena is moving. It is moving fast. You know, and as you know, the capacity to culture into advanced stages of development is moving so fast, and the capacity to coax stem cells into embryos is moving really fast. And it's it's an interesting question for the cow. You know, is this is this going to see application? Are people going to try to produce embryos from stem cells? You know, at a very high number. It's not, it's certainly not there yet, right? It's not it's not like you can produce tens of thousands of embryos from stem cells in a very simple manner. I think there's a tremendous amount of loss along the way. Fair enough. Every time I've said that'll never happen. <laughs> never say that'll never happen. I think Be- I said, there's no way a dairy farmer is going to buy an ultrasound machine and two pregnancy diagnoses. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. No one is going to spend that much money. Yeah. Of course, now everybody's ultrasounding cows to pregnancy diagnose. You know, the technology, like you say, moves very fast. And dairy farmers, I think, love technology. They do. They embrace it. They're always looking for it. Sometimes they get ahead of us, and we spend our time testing things they've already started doing. Um, So I think, like, I like history, so I like reading about when artificial insemination was developed back Mm in the 30s and, you know, the challenge that it represented to people's thinking I think we're going to go through another phase like that where some of these technologies will be very challenging to how we think about how animals are produced. Yeah. If I can produce, and you know, this sounds like science fiction, but it's like if I could take skin cells, turn them into stem cells, turn those stem cells into oocytes and sperm, then I can produce embryos from any cell. And, you know, so for humans, that would be great if, you know, you were exposed to measles when you were 15 and your hermetagonia were all destroyed, you know, you would be able to restore fertility. But I think it's going to have implications for livestock production as well. And, you know, it'll have big implications for genetics and how much inbreeding we have and how we can maintain genetic diversity. But, you know, I can tell you, all the companies that are involved in livestock genetics are very aware of this field, and many of them are trying to find ways to capitalize on it right. before their competitors do. I, so always t- I think yeah. your talk with Carl will be very interesting. Yeah, I think the um, – I always tell people – I mean, I was born in 1960, but have there, have there ever been a greater 60, 70 years of science? I mean, you look at science, you know, discovery of DNA in 1954 and look at where you are today, right? And has there ever been a greater, I mean, that's pretty heady words, right? Has there ever been a greater error in science? But as a scientist, I feel, I feel so fortunate to have been practicing science during this era and to experience all the, the evolution, you know, of science. I thought you got a, brought up a really great point because it reminds me of when I teach dairy science to the freshmen here. I, I talk all about 
genetics and genomics and DNA testing and all these things and then get to artificial insemination. And I said, well, there's one technology that hasn't changed in 60 years that I, <laughs> I hold up an artificial vagina and I hold up a, you know, <laughs> I teach them how you freeze semen. And I'm like, well, we're kind of in how you even to a certain extent evaluate semen. Uh, you know, it's still morphology, mortality, and, you know, and but so I, I, I applaud your, your eagerness to uh, change the way we breed cows. I mean, I, I really do. It's, it's interesting. It's a technology that just hasn't changed. But is there anything else you want to comment on before we close? No, I just appreciate it very much. I knew it would be a lot of fun talking with you. Yeah. So you don't disappoint me. Thank you very much, Pete, for taking the time to talk. And it, this has been an awesome conversation. I knew it would be. I mean, I think what really comes through when I talk to you is your tremendous knowledge, your tremendous respect for the science, your knowledge of history and who did what, when, and, and their contributions. And it's, it's just so important to have that conversation. So thank you very much for sharing. Yeah, no, thank you. You're you're a little bit like that yourself, so... <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. All right, everybody. That brings us to the end of our show. If you enjoy Dairy Digressions, be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us and spread the word to a friend or colleague. I'd like to remind you that for show notes and more episodes of Dairy Digressions and to learn more about the American Dairy Science Association, go to ADSA.org. Until next episode, thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Pete. Thank you, Matt.